morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I want to welcome all the people who are worshiping with us via the Internet at Pike Road, Cloverdale, Wetumpka, a lot of other places around the world. We're glad you're with us today. We added one more story to the storm stories. It's announced here that I'd kind of left out Noah and the flood, which was a big storm. So we're going to go ahead talk about it. That would be a big storm. But I will warn you that when we talk about these stories, the same thing happened when we talked about Jonah and the whale. A lot of people just, all they'd ever heard about was Jonah and the whale. They never understood the historical context or what was going on in the story. The same thing can happen when you talk about Noah's Ark and the animals. We can see a picture on a nursery wall of all these happy animals. There's a rainbow and everybody's sailing in a boat and it just was a floating zoo out for a joyride. And that's not the case. You want to know what drove the whole story behind Noah and the ark? Was this a story of great sin and God's judgment and God rescuing only a few because only a few were willing to listen? That doesn't sound like the happy animals and the rainbows. Yeah, it's not. It's a very sobering story. And it's a warning to us because Jesus himself used it as a warning that God's judgment will one day come on the world when he returns, and we better be ready. I think I have your attention now. Okay, good, all right. Uh, But that's where we're going with the story today. This is quite something when you look at these storm stories, and that's why they're worth reading and understanding. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And Lord, this is uh, one of those stories where your word reminds us of things that sometimes, um, well, they're very sobering. We don't think about it as often as we should. And so, Lord, I pray that today you'll speak and move me out of the way and remind us of some very important understandings and applications from Noah, the story of Noah and the flood. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Point one on your outline reminds us of the context in which the flood happened. It happens in Genesis 6. Genesis 1 is where God created the earth. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, and everything is going great. Uh, Eve is created to complete Adam. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel. They eat of the forbidden fruit. There are a million trees in the Garden of Eden. God says, I want you to eat. You can eat the fruit off all the trees you want. Eat yourself sick on on the other fruit, but just not this one tree in the middle of the garden. The knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you'll die. You'll know. You will know good from evil because you will have committed it. God asks us to love him and trust him. He placed that tree in the Garden of Eden the same, uh, for the same reason that uh, he allows us to make choices. is because God wants love given freely. And so Adam and Eve had to have a choice. If there's no choice, then it's not real love. If I didn't give you an opportunity to love someone else, then how do I know if you love me? I mean, that's why I was so happy when Debbie allowed me to put the ring on her finger and saying, forsaking all others, she'd be with me the rest of my life. And I'm not letting her change her mind. But I had to know that she chose me above all others. The only reason I'm the only man in the world for her is because she chooses that to be so. She chooses that. We value love like that. We say, that's what love is all about. Well, God had to allow them to choose and when they looked at the fruit, it looked so delicious and it made them so wise because the devil said, you know, the only reason God's preventing you from eating this is because the day you eat of it, you realize you're as smart as he is. And God doesn't want you to be like he is. So they ate of it. And sin entered their hearts. Sin entered the world. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden and a curse was placed on the world. 
and things started to die and decay at that moment, and that process continues until this day. But I want you to understand, the flood takes, the flood story only makes sense if you start out from a beautiful world that God created and then see what sin did to it. Romans 5.12, Paul comments on this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And I want to remind us, when we choose to do things we know are wrong, when we choose to pass on gossip we know is none of our business, when we choose to throw a fit even though we know it's childish, that's sin. When we know we should get involved in a situation, we know we should help someone, and we say, I don't want to get involved, I don't want to do it, that's sin. We choose those things. And then we get angry at God. Because he allowed us to choose. And the reason he allows us to choose is because he's God of love. And he wants us, and he created us in his image with the choice to love too. But if we choose to go the opposite way, well, that brings sin and death. Romans 8.20, Paul also reminds us that against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. All of creation was too. So Genesis 1, the world is perfect. Genesis 2, they're in the garden. Genesis 3, they sin and they're kicked out. Genesis 4 and 5, we hear about first murder and all kinds of other sins. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, point 2, within a few generations, the world became so wicked, God was grieved having made us. The Lord saw how great, this is Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, if I'm grieved I ever made them. I created them for a love relationship with myself, but the farther they get away, the farther they run, the faster they run, and now they don't want to have anything to do with me anymore. If you want to understand God's attitude toward sin, that's what it is. He created us for a loving relationship with himself. And yet, the inclination of our hearts is so stubborn and so sinful that we're always thinking about ourselves and giving no thought at all to the one who made us. And so we do all kinds of horrible things. Well, that brings us to a life application. We must view sin as a deathly serious problem. God does. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. God is life. God is perfect. There's no sin in him at all. He cannot tolerate sin. We, on the other hand, we make light of sin all the time because we're, we're all sinners. And so we joke about sin. Yeah, this probably isn't good for me. Yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. But, yeah, I know I'm going to have to change this. But, can anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? Yeah. And some of you have heard me say this before, but we treat sin like parking tickets. Ah, just a minor little infraction. I'll deal with it later. I'll pay the fine later. Everybody gets them. God deals with it like cancer. Hey, what's that you got? Well, it's a diagnosis from my doctor. I've got stage four cancer. But, you know, I'll deal with it later. Let's go get something to eat. Wait, what? What'd you say? Oh, it's no big deal. I mean, it's just cancer. Dude, you got to get that checked out right away. You got to deal with that right away. This will destroy you. Ah, I mean, nobody would take a diagnosis like that lightly. If they did, you'd say, I don't know if you're appreci- I don't know if you understand what this means. And that's the way God looks at sin in our lives. 
We just pass it off. Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. And God goes, no. This will destroy you. Sin destroys marriages. It destroys families. destroys businesses. destroys countries. takes life. takes property. takes joy. creates pain, disease, war, murder. And so God looks at it as deathly serious. He was grieved that he'd even made people because now it wasn't just one or two people sinning. It was a whole human race. And not only turning away from him, but running away from him. There's another scripture in there from Isaiah 53. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. I want to move on to point three. God decided to restart the human race with the last righteous man in his family. There was one righteous man left. One righteous man who was walking in a right relationship with God on the whole earth. God knew. And God had a relationship with him. There's one guy who still understood why he was there. And at God's command, this guy's name was Noah, and he built a gigantic lifeboat. That's what the ark was. It was a big lifeboat. Because God's judgment was going to come on the human race and all air-breathing animals um, through a flood. Listen to what it says in Genesis 6. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah, the only one left, the last righteous guy, and God says, okay, I'll start it with you. If anybody ever says, well, you know, I'd believe in God, but if, if God loves righteousness so much, why didn't he just start over, find the righteous people and start over, and then you'd cure the sin problem? That's already been tried. He did start over with Noah. By the way, it wasn't a permanent solution. Has anybody noticed? Because the sin nature, even though you saved Noah and his family, the sin nature was inside their hearts. We'll get back to that in a minute. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And by the way, I'm treating this as a real story, not a myth. I know there are people who are probably going to get comments through the internet and other things, on email and things, saying, well, you can't believe that Noah and the flood, that this was a real story and this is a real person. I am treating it as a real person. And I would encourage you to also, because all the applications that come in the New Testament all speak of Noah as a real person and the flood as a real event. You'll see this in a minute. And by the way, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you think this is all mythology and none of it has anything to do with anything real... Noah's son, Shem, that's where we get the word Semitic. Like, this is because Shem, the Jews are the descendants of Shem. Semitic is a variation on that name. So if you're anti-Semitic, you're anti the descendants of Shem. You can be anti-Semitic, that's real. There are Semitic people, descendants of Shem, a real guy who is a descendant of Noah, another real guy. I don't know any Panites who are the descendants of Peter Pan. <laughs> Do you know Panites? Well, it's made up. Well, isn't that interesting? There's a whole race of people who aren't made up, who trace their ancestry back to Noah's son. They're real. Just saying. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So God said to Noah, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct the decks and stalls throughout its interior. 
make about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. By the way, those dimensions have the ratios of 30 by 5 by 3. Um, that's the optimal design for stability in modern shipbuilding. Just wanted you to know, if you design it with those dimensions, it's almost impossible to capsize. You'd have to have turn it more than 90 degrees for it to turn over. But it's all made up. I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you, your wife, your sons, and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries on the ground will come to you and be kept alive. Noah just had to build the boat. God would bring the animals. Be sure to take on board enough food for you and your family and for all the animals so Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded them. And if you flip your outline over, you'll see this was a step of faith. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews comments on this. All of my life applications come straight out of the New Testament where they're talking about Noah. And again, the New Testament writers didn't treat this as a fable or a myth. They treat this as a real guy. Listen to what it says. The writer of Hebrews says, It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. I mean, this was all an act of faith. There had never been a flood like this. From the way, from the way uh, Eden is described and how water used to come up the ground to water all the plants, it may never have even rained before. The world was different at that time. The Bible presents that it was very different before the flood. Everything changed after this terrible act of judgment on sin. But Noah had to step out on faith. He's building this ship a football field and a half long with all these decks in it, incredibly huge boat, and he's building this on a plane somewhere. This isn't in a harbor. Nobody's ever seen a ship this size. I mean, can you imagine if somebody was building an ocean liner in Huntsville and telling you they're going to sail it out? What in the world? How are you going to get the thing to the water? Oh, the water's coming here. And it preached judgment on the world because as he was building it and as the animals were coming, people had every chance to understand that God was going to protect Noah. And I'm sure he gave the invitation. We'll see it later with Peter that he proclaimed this to people and they wouldn't listen. Noah had no experience in shipbuilding. God called him to do it. He trusted that the plan that God put in his heart was the plan. This was a life raft. It had no navigational equipment, no steering wheel, no sails, no rudder. He had to trust that once this thing got afloat, when the flood came, that God was the one who was going to steer it wherever he wanted to be and it would come to a safe landing. There were no brakes. No way to control the thing. God himself was going to have to take care of you. And by those dimensions with the stability, you can bet the boat rocked a lot especially when all the storms were coming. And Noah had to trust the Lord the whole time. I mean, can you imagine being a person who walked in fellowship with God? Nobody else was. Can you imagine the laughter that he had? It's not going to flood. It's never flooded before. How are you going to get that big old thing in the ocean? 
The water's coming here. Ah, no, you're crazy. Now, if you don't think that happened, I'm sure it did. There was one door, by the way. And the Bible says when all the animals came in, right before it started to rain, the Lord himself closed the door and sealed them in. And Noah had to live by faith. Hmm. Well, God sent a terrible storm to bring judgment on our sinful world. The story continues in Genesis 7. I've got selected verses from chapter 7 and 8 here. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family. For among all the people on earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. So Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. He went on board the boat to escape the flood. He and his wife and his sons and their wives. And with them were all the various kinds of animals. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. And all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. And the rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. This was the mother of all storms, if you will. This was the biggest storm ever. For 40 days, the flood waters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. And finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, eight people in all. Ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Two more months went by, then at last the earth was dry. And then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you, you and your wife, your sons and their wives, release all the animals so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. And a couple of life applications I want to get right out of the gate here are these that when you understand what was going on here, God knows how to rescue godly people. In an age of wickedness, God knows who are those who are committed to him and can rescue them. There was a time of judgment. God made an appeal as Noah built the boat. The scripture tells us that he condemned the world. That means that he would have had plenty of opportunities to explain why he was building the boat. And apparently no one joined him. Peter talks about this. He says, God didn't spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment, so God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. You see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. God knows how to rescue people from judgment. Well, John, does that still apply to us today? Yeah, I hope you figured out by now that that's why you come to Jesus, so you and I can be rescued from judgment. Do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and yours so I could be rescued? If that's good news, would you say amen? amen? If you're not totally convinced, turn back to the first page here. When I had Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, I w I'm reading it here. I wish I would have put it in there in the first place, but if you'd flip back to that first life application. But Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. See, starting over with Noah didn't solve the sin problem. As the earth repopulated, sin repopulated. And I hope that everybody understands this. This should prove once and for all that sin is in our hearts. We're born with a sin nature. But what if we could be reborn? What if through faith in Christ when we confess our sins, our sins can be placed on Jesus? And what if God's Holy Spirit can be placed in our hearts to make us brand new? Well then, 
we could be made new, new creations through Christ. And sin could be dealt with in our lives forever. And Jesus becomes our life raft. Jesus becomes our rescuer. Jesus is our hope. And that's how we escape God's judgment. The Bible speaks this way. We must speak this way. We must not be like the rest of the world saying, ah, sin, schmin, we all sin, nobody's perfect, ah, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's deathly serious. God started all over in Noah's time. He sacrificed his own son when Jesus came. And in a minute you'll see he's coming back soon and there will be judgment. Sin is deathly serious in the eyes of God and that's why he was willing to let his son die so we could have a right relationship with him. I told you all that picture of the happy animals and the rainbow, this is a lot more serious. Mm -hmm. But I tell you it's good news. I tell you it's good news. Through faith in Christ, we can escape the coming judgment. Because Jesus is our rescuer. Another life application here is that obedience requires endurance. Hebrews 10.36 reminds us that patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you'll receive all that he has promised. I hope you understood this, that it was 10 months after the flood began. The waters almost dried up. Two more months went by. Noah and his family were on the ark for a year. A year. I doubt that it was viewed as a pleasure cruise. That's a lot of manure to shovel. For a year. Man, what a journey. And then to build the thing, the Bible introduces Noah when he's 500 years old. There were longer lifespans then, and the flood came when he was 600. And so the Bible doesn't say specifically how long it took him to build the boat, but it might take him more than 100 years. Because there's one other verse where Jesus, where the, I mean, where the Bible says that God says, I won't contend with sinful man more than 120 years anymore. I mean, what if he labored on that thing longer than most of us would live, than, than any of us would live? And we find it hard to be faithful for a few hours sometimes. This guy was somebody special. And his obedience also required endurance, not only to build the boat, but to stay in it for a year with no rudder, no compass, no map, no idea where you're going to sit down. Or even when. But he had faith in God and he endured. That's why these people are celebrated. That's why these stories are in here. We need rescue because we're sinners too. We need endurance because we like to give up. And these stories are in here to encourage us. That God knows how to rescue godly people. God rewards endurance. God comes to save us and will help us. These stories matter, and we need to embrace the truth that they tell us. And that brings us to point four. Jesus warned that his return will catch many by surprise, just like the flood did in Noah's day. Now, when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. 
In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. Again, he doesn't talk about this like this is fantasy. Hey, how would this story work if the story of Noah is made up? Hey, that made-up story of Noah, well, my return will be just as made up. I mean, that didn't really happen, so Jesus' return isn't really going to happen. And you'll see in a minute, Peter will warn us that people are going to come saying exactly that. And by the way, on the internet today, I can show you article after article where they are saying exactly that. But let's keep going for a minute here. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In the days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That's the way it'll be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. This is Jesus talking. Now, if you take your outline and flip it all the way over to the back side, the discussion question for the Connect Group discussion questions, question seven, I quoted a passage from Peter that I just want to read to you right now. This is Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, well, his head disciple, commenting on this very truth and what Jesus said about it. He said, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last day, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They'll say, whatever happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything's remained the same since the world was first created. And they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And Peter said, people are going to deliberately forget it and mock this and say it never happened. Things have always been the way they are. And my friends, that's what's happening right now. And people are saying, never happened. There was no great flood. And you go, well, John, I mean, can you blame them? And there's no evidence that there was a great flood. I mean, there's nothing. What, what evidence could there be of a great flood? Well, I want you to understand that um, there is a uh, canyon now in Texas, in the Texas Hill Country in 2002. Um, there's a lake called Canyon Lake. And the dam overflowed because they had a lot of water, and it overflowed seriously. And it carved out a gorge over the next three days that's now called Canyon Lake Gorge. It's a mile long. Carved out a trench, a gorge, 20 feet deep in limestone in three days. If you had never been there and no one had ever seen it, if, you, if things happen the way we're always told, things happen a little bit at a time over billions and millions of years, you go, well, that's taken hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years for a little stream to carve. And you can go on, it, you can go on the Internet and see the pictures of it. Boulders, four feet, five feet, six feet across, got rolled, tumbled down this thing. Happened in three days. But if you were going to go by the same standards that we're all told, hey, things always happen like they do today, and the little stream that had been flowing there before would have taken hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years. Well, does that matter, John? Well, yeah, because there's canyons all over the earth that are hard to explain. Gigantic canyons sometimes. And we say, well, it's carved out by a little stream. Well, then why aren't the hills nice and rounded the way other streams are? Why are they sharp like they were cut out all at one time? Well, that can't be. That would have taken more water than we can imagine. Oh, and by the way, if you think that's just an isolated thing, it's not true. There's also, after Mount St. Helens erupted on March 19th, 1982, there was a dam that overflowed there. A dam broke and triggered a catastrophic mudslide, and it carved out uh, what's called the Little Grand Canyon. 
I mean, it's one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon. It's that big, and it happened in one day. Oh. So gigantic canyons might be proof there was a big flood. Well, yeah. Or we can say, well, that never happened, so that doesn't explain any of this. Because if that happened, and it was all true, well, then maybe Jesus' is coming back is true, too. And maybe there is a God who judges sin. Maybe we do need a Savior. And maybe I do need to repent. And maybe he's coming back soon, and I don't have time to keep kicking the can down the road. Because that's what Peter's talking about. Let's finish the rest of that passage on the back. You'll see that's what he's saying here. He said he used the same water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Well, why doesn't Jesus come back? Because he's giving more time. And again, he wants us to accept us. He wants us to accept him freely as a choice. If he comes back with judgment, we all go, oh yeah, I believe in you now. Well, you might, but you don't love him. I mean, God could send 12-foot angels, 12-foot tall angels to dangle all of us over the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, do you believe in God? And we'd all say, yeah, I believe. But it wouldn't make us love him. We'd hate him for it. And he wants us to come of our own free will. He is love. He loves us. He wants us to choose to love him in return. He sacrificed everything to pay the penalty for our sin. He wants us to now give our lives to him so he can give us new life. Because he wants the relationship he had with Adam and Eve before the flood. And the relationship he had with Noah who listened to him and trusted him. My friends, this is what God desires. And so Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. And please underline hurrying it along. Now go back to two last life applications when we finish this morning. This is Jesus commenting again, and Peter was just playing off. You'll see he was just playing off what Jesus had said. We must be ready all the time. Jesus said, so you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he'd keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. I run into people all the time. They go, yeah, I know I got to get some things right, but... You know, I'll handle that before I die. Do you get memos I don't get? When is that going to be? I literally had somebody a month ago ask me, they said, will you do my funeral when I die? And I go, I don't know. When are you going to die? I mean, how do you know I'm going to outlive you? They went, oh, yeah, that's kind of important. I go, yeah, that's very important. My friends, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know how long I'm going to live. And that's why the Bible says, hey, if there's something important for you to do, do it today. Today is the day of repentance. If you've been running from God, today is the best day to turn around because we're not guaranteed of tomorrow. 
there were people who mocked Noah and his ark, and they watched him build that thing, and they probably thought they had plenty of time. Even some people thought, well, you know, I might come there one day. And then the day when the rain started, the door was shut by God himself, and no one else could get in, and it was too late. If the Holy Spirit has been working on your conscience about someone you need to make things right with, do it today. If you have never given your heart to Christ, do it today. We've got nothing more that we'd love to talk with you about. And Jesus says, be ready, because you don't know. And I don't know. Here's another life application. Jesus said we must carry out the work Jesus left us to accomplish. Here's the way he put it. He said a faithful servant, a sensible servant, is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns, he finds that servant's done a good job, there'll be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and he thinks, ah, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying, getting drunk? Will the master return unannounced and unexpectedly? He'll cut that servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. I thought Jesus just talked about love. Jesus never talked about judgment. Yeah, he did. And he said it'll be just like it was in Noah's day. And he's given us work to do. That work is to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, ourselves, and to go and make disciples, proclaiming the good news everywhere, teaching these same disciples the things we've learned, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, if you open up the cover of your bulletin, you will find all the things I just mentioned right here because that's the whole reason we organized Centerpoint. Because we believe this is coming and we want to hurry that day along. We want to live godly lives together. That's why we want people in a small group so we can all grow. That's why we want us praying about friends and neighbors who are unchurched and far from God so we can help them escape God's judgment. He's coming back. Soon. If I could stress you how urgent this is, I'm afraid I've already yelled too loud. But the story of Noah isn't a story of a happy bunch of animals on a little, on a little pleasure cruise around the lake. It's a story of a lifeboat and there's only one man left on earth who is willing to do what God said. And Jesus says, the day when I return, it will be like it was in the days of Noah, when people are partying, getting drunk, consistently doing things that are evil in their, and going their own way. Does anyone honestly feel like the world is getting more righteous? And this is why we need to proclaim the name of Jesus to live together and encourage each other and do all we can to hurry that day along. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you for the day, Lord. This is urgent. I pray, Lord, you would put the urgency in our hearts. Forgive us for our sins. They are many. Remind us of your great love and that Jesus is our lifeboat. He is our rescuer. And we can have new life in his name. I pray, Father, if there's a decision we need to make, we would not put it off any longer. If we are walking, that we would walk in obedience with you. And that you would use us to proclaim your good news as far as we can. I thank you for the opportunity we have to look at the story of Noah. 
I pray that we will learn from his faith and his endurance and his willing to put up with whatever in order to maintain a relationship with you. I thank you that you rescued him. And we have confidence that, Lord, you will rescue us from death itself so we don't have to be afraid. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.